0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, a podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world in the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to talk about Trump's dirty tricks and where he might get his inspiration from. Lots of people have been writing about the American elections this year, which are going to be the highest stakes election that we've seen for many many years but people are also arguing that it's not just who will be president that is on the ballot paper but in fact the future of democracy itself. Many people are discussing how Donald Trump seems to be trying to undermine faith in democracy to use different techniques to hack democracy And as a foreign policy think tank, we can see that many of the techniques which are being introduced into American politics have been tried out by would-be strongmen around the world. So I have been discussing the techniques which we're seeing in American politics with experts on democracy in many other parts of the world, looking at what's happened in Turkey, in Russia, in Hungary, in Poland and around the post-Soviet space. And this special podcast is an attempt to put the American elections into a comparative context and to see where some of the inspiration for these different techniques might have come from. To help us make sense of that, I'm very happy to welcome ECFR's Turkey expert and senior policy fellow, Asle Aydin-Tashbash, Andrew Wilson, who is an ECFR senior policy fellow and expert on post-Soviet politics, author of the much-quoted book, Virtual Politics, and our in-house US expert, Jeremy Shapiro, who's research director at ECFR. Thank you very much to all of you for joining way we're going to organise this podcast is going to look at, at seven different dirty tricks which we've identified, which I wrote a, a piece about recently, which we will link to in the thing. We'll start off with the first technique which is being used, which is the weaponization of history. Asta, why don't you tell us about that and, and maybe also explain where Donald Trump might be getting his inspiration from?
1: Well, uh, clearly, uh, Mark, both Donald Trump and President Erdogan here have been experts in weaponization of history, promoting their political platforms to, in fact, polarization and social divisions, but also not really minding using history as a tool for that. Uh, in the case of Erdogan, it was always, of course, glorification of the Ottoman Empire, but also in some sense denigrating the Republican Period. I think in 2013, he spoke about, you know, mosques being used during the Republican era as barns for animals, which wasn't true, but, you know, this type of revisionist historical facts. And what he's basically offering is a return to a golden era, the return of the empire, so to speak, which is not very different from MAGA. There is certainly a revisionist understanding of US power what it was, even throughout the Cold War, when you listen to Donald Trump, and same with Erdogan. But another thing about using history in terms of emphasizing greatness, both of these leaders do not mind social divisions and offending the voters. In other words, Erdogan does not mind alienating a group of people, secularists in this case, or Alevites, who really are attached to the Republican era history. In the same way, President Trump does not really seem to mind offending, let's say, Black Lives Matter demonstrators. He has already ele- electorally ruled them out. In 2010, I was covering Erdogan's campaign for a referendum and each and every town he went to, he would say, Kılıçdaroğlu, Darol who's the main opposition leader, he would say, you know, Kılıçdaroğlu is an alawite right? You know, he's an alawite And then he would pause waiting for what followed, which would be voters booing Kılıçdaroğlu. And this was extremely disturbing. And we assume that politicians really want to be uniters, that that's the key to winning elections. You get as many votes as you can, appeal to as many, as wide a base as you can. But clearly, no. In divided societies, what's clearly more important is not trying to peel off votes from the other side, what's important is consolidating your base, which is a tactic really Trump is using that, you know, sort of talking about media, liberals, feminists, Antifa, Black Lives Matter. He does not want their vote at all. He's not interested. He's interested in getting the Trump voter of 2016 to go to the polling stations on the day of the elections.
0: Okay. Why don't we go straight to the second uh, technique, which is being used, Jeremy, why don't you explain that? It's about, uh, we call it post-truth politics and direct communication with voters.
2: Yeah, thanks, Mark. So it's been very well noted that Trump has has a particular style of communicating with the voters, principally through Twitter, he speaks to them directly, and it creates a lot of sort of attention and profile with this. And that's all important. But there's actually another aspect to it, which is that it's, For him, it is a way around the sort of classic filters, the filter of his own government, the filter of the media, and it allows him to communicate directly with the public. And that has had some interesting effects that I don't think people would predict it. There's no president has done this before. And one of the things it's done is it's erased the need for the president to tell the truth at all. I mean, it's Trump has a very, very distant relationship with the truth. I mean, he's sort of beyond the lying. He doesn't really care whether anything is true anymore. And because he communicates directly, uh, and you can see this, by the way, in the Washington Post has a sort of accumulation of his lies. And it's really extraordinary. He's kind of a lie machine, averaging about lies a day. Every US president ever has lied to the American public, but nothing on the order of what Trump has done. And what's interesting about some of these lies is that they're repeated over and over again, even though they're debunked. So what the direct communication, I guess a good example of that in the recent days has been this idea that Biden wants to defund the police. You know, there's tape of Biden saying, I'm against defunding the police. Um, Couldn't really be clearer. Trump nonetheless repeats it every time. Every time he has a speech, he repeats it on Twitter constantly. And the efforts to fact check him, the efforts to demonstrate to the public that that is a lie, don't work to a large degree because he has this direct communication channel with the voters. So in that sense, the direct communication channel is an enabler of the post-truth politics that he has pioneered.
0: Andrew, how much of that is familiar to someone who's been studying the post-Soviet space? Well, um, direct communication
3: with the voters, um, you know, Putin isn't on Twitter, but you have uh, very well um, funded and uh, powerful state propaganda machines. Traditional TV is normally the the favourite, but also various methods for infiltrating and uh, counteracting uh, opposition discourse on social media. what's also noticeable there, I think, is indirect communication with voters, that media space is populated by a lot of fakes or proxies, various whitewashing or greywashing channels for um, post-truth. In in Russian, they have the rather wonderful name of toilet pipes, how you spew um, dirt out into the mainstream. And you can definitely see... um, Western media markets being populated
0: by the similar, similar kind of things. So why don't you carry on uh, while you're at it and can move, help us move on to the third technique, which is the idea of voter suppression, which is, uh, seems to be an important part in the playbook in, in a lot of the countries that we've been studying.
3: Sure. If I'm supposed to quote Russian terms for everything, there isn't an exact Russian equivalent. You talk about administrative resources, but sometimes these can be used to produce more votes for the incumbent as we've just seen in Belarus. (laughs) But uh, reducing votes for the opposition is is part of that kind of terminology. You can see all sorts of techniques in America that uh, would be instantly familiar to Russians. I mean, voter suppression is, one, discouraging Americans from voting, but you also have um, abuse of the administrative apparatus uh, via local laws. Voter purging is in many ways more pernicious, sort of removing inactive, supposedly inactive voters from the rolls, particular measures against particular categories of people, like felons. Since Shelby versus Holder, the kind of Supreme Court case that gutted the 1965 Voting Rights Act in uh, 2013, you've seen a kind of second generation of post-Jim Crow laws, not literacy tests anymore, but ID requirements, that kind of thing. But the biggest and most effective technology in For voter suppression in America is absence of polling stations. You know, huge numbers have been closed. And you can look at, there's a a map on civilrights.org about how many of these are in the Old South. So when the BBC shows the traditional papers of people queuing to vote on election day, sure, it's good news, these people are enthusiastic. But, you know, the, the real story is that they're having to queue hours and hours to vote. I've never queued in my
0: life you've drawn some parallels between attempts to to suppress voting by African-Americans and what Erdogan's done in Kurdish regions in Turkey.
1: Yes, certainly. Once again, I think that he's not really counting on those voters to show up. But what matters is that they don't show up for the opposition. This was Erdogan's tactic during the Istanbul elections last year trying to get the pro-Kurdish HTP not to vote for the opposition, making it very difficult in both general elections in 2018 and 2017 referendum, making it very difficult for Kurds, particularly the Kurdish party, to campaign, to express their opposition and whatnot. And in a similar way, when we look at what's happening in, in the United States now, Donald Trump knows he's not going to get the vote of Black Lives Matter demonstrators. What he cares about, to the extent that he does on this issue is what he cares about is actually making sure that his own base is sufficiently satisfied, sufficiently annoyed by these demonstrators to show up and vote for him again in in November. I think uh, with this, of course, comes the law and order card.
0: Let's hold the law and order card back a bit. But maybe before we go on to that and some of the other topics, Jeremy, you can talk a bit about because the sharp end of some of this voter suppression debate is around the idea of postal voting at the moment.
2: Yeah, there's a huge controversy raging in the US because Trump appointed a new postmaster general in June, who is a a longtime opponent of the Postal Service and an investor in Postal Service alternatives. And he has, since he um, took over, basically been dismantling the Postal Service is almost not too strong a term. But Reducing sorting machines, reducing the capacity of the of the post offices to deliver mail. A lot of people believe that this is a, because Trump has been complaining about mail-in voting, and he believes that mail-in voting overrepresents the Democrats, and he's on the record as saying, you know, we can't win if all these mail-in votes happen. So the theory here is a pretty good one actually. If the mail doesn't arrive, then you can't vote by mail, and the mail, you know, the all of these elections have dates by which the mail needs to arrive. And so if it takes, if it gets slowed down, all oh, these votes won't come.
0: Why don't you bring us into our fifth technique, which is fact, a term which comes out from Turkey. Asta can tell us where it comes from originally. But I think it's the idea of the, the deep state and, and running against one's own government.
2: I find this really fascinating. I mean, you know, practically every presidential candidate in recent history has run against Washington. They always claim to be from outside the establishment. And in their challenge, they lambaste the federal government for its many sins. I mean, even George W. Bush, who was the son of a president and the grandson of a senator, did this and it worked. So in that sense, Trump's vitriolic attacks on Washington during the campaign were not really at all new. But only Trump has continued his attacks on the government once he's he's in office, which, you know, at first blush is kind of strange. Um, I mean, after all, I think most presidents probably reasoned that they controlled the federal government. And so after the first few months in office, they would probably be held responsible for its actions. I I think a lot of them probably felt like they actually were quite difficult to rein in and that there was a sort of permanent government that did what it wanted, no matter what the president said. But, you know, they didn't want to admit this to the public. Otherwise, their, their leadership might be found lacking. Trump just clearly has no such reservations. He talks about all the time. For example, the the Justice Department, the intelligence community, the State Department community, parts of the government that officially answer to him as if they were foreign enemies. And the strategy has at least partially enabled Trump to disavow the actions of his own government, giving him a lot of the sort of communication advantages of an outsider, even while he remains the most powerful man in the world. This has taken the form recently of he's lambasting Biden and the Democrats for the anarchy in the streets, even though you would think as president it's happening under his watch and he would be responsible for it, but he's taken absolutely no responsibility for it.
0: So Asa, this term deep state has now become a universal term, but I first encountered it in Turkey. Do you want to talk a bit about its history and how central it's also been to Erdogan's approach to power?
1: Yes, so basically deep state is a state faceless, nameless bureaucrats, security officials, that used dirty tactics to look at to suppress Kurds. This was how it was used in the 90s. Originally, Deep State was responsible for kidnappings, for protecting officials that were responsible for human rights violations. That it was this shadowy cabal of nameless bureaucrats that were more loyalist than the king, the king being the state, ultimate state worship. And I think uh, Trump is very skillfully using this term. After Turkey, of course, you know, this came to be used in Egypt, particularly after Morsi and, and Pakistan uses it. I think I've seen it here and there in several other countries too. But Trump has actually said deep state. In the deep state, he also happens to include the CDC, Center for Disease Control, and by blaming nameless, faceless characters, in some sense, this provides a beautiful cover for leaders for their own failings. In the case of Turkey, between AKP's first two terms was a relentless struggle against the deep state and what Erdogan called Bureaucratic oligarchy. Now you hear almost this whole expression of bureaucratic oligarchy, Erdogan often mentioned. You hear a very similar tone when Trump speaks about, it's as if he would have long found a vaccine for COVID-19 had it not been for the deep state needlessly, you know, complicating his efforts and pushing forward. So I think the similarities are just very striking. It just so happens that Erdogan is now so powerful within the system and in Turkey, that he can no longer complain about the deep state. So as such, since the purging of Gülenists after the coup, as such, he is the omnipotent, omnipresent leader. So he has no one to complain about. But Trump, of course, still continues.
0: We'll come back to you a bit later to explain the law and order issue. But maybe before that, we can look at the fifth issue, which comes directly from the post-Soviet space, Andrew. It's the idea of political technology. Can you explain what you mean by that?
3: Yes, it's not a familiar term in the West. Uh, It makes perfect sense in Russian. Everybody knows what it means uh, because all politics is now manipulated by various technologies. Um, Politics is technology in Russia. To translate it into English, though, we probably need another word. An extra word, another adjective. (laughs) It's um, the use in politics of technologies that are deliberately uh, manipulative. Do we see any examples in the West? Well, fake or puppet parties are very common in the post-Soviet world. Hungary is one place where you can find them. They haven't really appeared in other states yet. Another is um, manipulation of other parties, third parties. I mean, in a very close Traditionally closed contest uh, that you normally get in America between Democrats and Republicans. There's all sorts of scope for playing with the smaller parties, the Greens, the Libertarians, or whatever, and try, you know, Republicans giving support to the Greens to try and vote off the Democrats, etc. Another is manipulation within opposition parties. And to be fair, we can cite a Democratic example in um, the (laughs) Jeremy, you'll correct me. I think it was the Senate race in Alabama that the Democrats sort of set up this operation whereby they tried to depict their um, Republican opponent as backed by Russian trolls, right, to uh, discredit him successfully, actually, uh, winning that particular election. And that came out... Yeah. (laughs) And that came out of a Democratic discussion about whether to fight fire with fire, whether whether to kind of adopt the same methods as as
0: as their opponents.
3: So it's bad technology um, corrupting politics.
0: Jeremy, do you want to introduce the the sixth technique, which is the idea of lawfare?
2: Yeah, lawfare is the idea of essentially using legal proceedings to tie up your opponents and to confuse them and to you know even win an election. And this is a technique which is frankly pioneered beyond Trump. Trump has you know has a history of suing everybody who moves. But the Republican Party was well on this one well before he showed up, and they in the pre-election period, it is really about challenging all of the voter expansion efforts that the Democrats have, uh, and so there's there's dozens or even hundreds of cases going on throughout the country in many many different states about voter ID laws, about the requirement to open a certain number of polling stations, about when people can vote early. Just every, in every single jurisdiction, uh, these things are challenged. And we can expect that the lawfare will be a, a really critical piece after the election if it's close. And there are arguments about which votes should be counted and what the standards are for counting and who gets to certify which elections, that there's going to be a huge mobilization of lawyers. This will, in the post-election period, this will really be as it was in 2000 where the election is likely to be won or lost. People are talking a lot about the streets, but I would be looking a little bit more at the courtroom.
0: So, well, why don't we end with the streets, Asla? This seems to be where this whole election process is is ending up. We're already seeing a huge amount of violence, the protests and counter-protests and vigilante mobs going around, shooting at protesters in different places, complaints about looting and all of that. Both contribute to a to a sense that politics as usual doesn't protect people, but also does strengthen strong men who are running the countries. How much of of what we're seeing in the American media at the moment is familiar to you as a Turk?
1: Oh, Mark, it's incredibly familiar. I mean, uh, we expect leaders to be responsive to mass demonstrations. And we sort of expect uh, Western leaders to say, well, I hear you, I get the message, let's discuss reform, let's sit together and talk about where things have been going. But Trump, very much following the Erdogan playbook, has not said that for a single day. He has instead used the law and order card, which we know does impact middle class uh, Americans. But he used it in order to malign the sort of Black Lives Matter demonstrations by sort of talking about urban hooliganism, essentially characterizing expression of dissent on the streets as a, a, a sort of one step shy of vandalism. This was very much the case back in uh, Gezi protests of 2013. If there was one incident here and there, he used that to characterize the entire outpouring of dissent and emotions to say essentially this was anarchy, that there were anarchists among the first three days were sincere, but very few sincere demonstrators versus a group that takes over of anarchists. Antifa is used, of course, in the United States, this sort of anti-fascist league as a symbol now by Trump. He's using it as a symbol of these dark sort of hooligans that are trying to hijack a people's innocent desire for racial equality in in a very similar way. Pro-government media in Turkey picked a very small leftist group to sort of suggest that Gezi protests were hijacked by anarchists and these groups that they had an ulterior motive. They had they were connected with outside powers, etc. At the end of the day, I think we are seeing in in the U.S. that law and order is important, and even the Biden camp is now talking about law and order because they do not want to be. Pigeonhole thing, you know, characterizes the group that wants streets, active street demonstrations every day. I think we're seeing both Biden and Kamala Harris talk about law and order. And uh, in a very similar way, it got to such a point in Turkey in 2013 that the opposition, after supporting Gezi demonstrations for days and days and weeks, in the end, they had they felt they had to distance themselves because Erdogan's rhetoric about hooliganism, vandalism, burning, and pillaging was such a constant chant in the background that they felt that it was impacting middle class voters and and couldn't really fully embrace Gezi demonstrators after two months of uh, street demonstrations.
0: So. If you take these seven techniques together, I think one of the most difficult things about them is that none of them are sort of classic authoritarian tactics. They're all about, in a way, hacking democracy, undermining people's faith in it. And if you start calling them out, you often end up making the situation even worse. If you complain about post-truth politics and do fact checks, it often reinforces the myths which you're trying to, to, to correct. If you complain about voter suppression you feed into cynicism about elections and make people feel that maybe the whole process is rigged anyway so why participate if you take to the streets to protest about what's going on you play into these sort of law and order cards how can democrats respond to these different techniques democrats both with a small d and with a big d respond to these techniques without making the situation even worse
2: well, that's a million dollar question. Look, I mean, I think some of the techniques can be battled against directly. The lawfare one, I think, is really some place where the Democrats have been fighting strongly this whole time and probably need to keep doing it. But I do agree with you that there are a lot of ways in which it just doesn't make sense to actually take these things on directly. Biden has had an interesting approach, which is he's just sort of beyond the the sort of battle for voter suppression. He's just trying to signal to the voters that he's different than Trump, that he is sort of running, you know, maybe he's following the campaign of the, the sort of radical love policy of the Turkish Istanbul election. I don't know. But he is sort of signaling to the public that he's not really playing these games, that he is about compassion and bipartisanship and empathy and responsibility and demonstrating to them that he's just a, kind of a good guy who's not interested in that. And so in that sense, it's a it's a sort of, to a degree, I mean, I think, I don't want to emphasize this too much, Democrats are definitely fighting back on a lot of, a lot of these lines, but to a degree, he's running on exactly the opposite technique, that democracy is a good thing and it can win
3: out. So um, one reason why Lawfare is so intense this time, I think, is that so much is at stake. I mean, if you think about the, the Florida referendum, which was passed, um, an attempt to um, liberalize voting conditions for felons, you know, under the conditions of the original referendum, Florida is a democratic state.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a super fascinating one, because what happened was that the Democrats managed to get on the ballot a referendum that gave voting rights back to felons who had completed their sentence. Then the Florida legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, came back and said, well, actually, what it means to complete your sentence is it ha- you have to have paid basically every court fine and every fee that was ever assessed against you which then eliminated 3 quarters of the people that had been franchised. If the De- if the Republicans hadn't done that, they wouldn't have a chance of winning. Mm-hmm.
1: One problem, of course, is in society so divided, candidates are not talking to the other side. They're not able to get their message through basically the trump base is listening to trump and is not really hearing the fact checking the the story the biden's compassionate plea and all of that in a very similar way erdogan's base i remember when corruption allegations surfaced in 2013 one akp guy told me look even if our base so erdogan burying Urns of gold in his backyard, they would go vote for him because he's their guy. You have to understand this. So, I don't think we've done enough in terms of covering or understanding the Trump base. I think there is outrage, Democratic, on the big D and small d constituencies. There is an understandable outrage, there's a pushback, and all of that. But there isn't really enough of a work put in to understand why. He is appealing to so many people still.
2: Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure that there's not enough work done in it, but I would say that, we, that you're right, that nobody is changing their votes. And that's why I think that the, the techniques that we talked about, the voter suppression one is the most important, because at this point, you know, we know already how everyone in America is going to vote with only slight exaggeration. What we don't know is whose votes are going to be counted and who's going to show up to vote. And that's why the the real battle between now and election day is on the voter suppression and voter counting front, And all the other techniques that we mentioned, I think, have been very important, but they're done now. That's what matters for the next two months.
0: We will be coming back to these topics, I think, many times over the next couple of months. Stakes, as people said are incredibly high. And I think that if there is a contested election in the US, which it looks like there might very well be, it will normalise things even further. There are many countries, including ones where we have offices, where going to vote is just the beginning rather than the end of the electoral process, because people take to the streets and it takes a very long time to, to resolve it. And I think there is a lot of fear that that might happen in November. But also the you know, quite apart from the way that democracy gets damaged and dismantled and generally undermined in, in the US, that, that, that's obviously vastly important because of the, the fact that America has been such a beacon of democratic values but, and plays such an important part in the world. But I think it also will contribute to normalizing a lot of these tactics in, in other places and to the erosion of democracy and the deconsolidation of democracy in other places. Why don't we bring this relatively gloomy (laughs) discussion to an end now and do the last thing which we have to do in this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Asa, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
1: Well, I read two novels, one after the other, and I wish I could go back and read them again and again because they were beautiful and I just want to talk about babies. There are some people who are still planning a beach vacation Sirsu is once. It's about sort of a half goddess, not a very important figure in Greek mythology, this the daughter of Helios. But her story is effectively taken and almost retold as a modern the tale of a young woman looking for love and the problems she has with family. You know, it's it's sort of a Sex and the City meets Greek mythology. It's a beautifully written novel, definitely about uh, female empowerment and uh, and a great take on the Greek mythology. But it's also so well written. So
0: Jeremy Bat recommended it in the in the last podcast he was on. I think
2: it's Circe, but I wouldn't
0: swear to it.
1: Well, okay. then, then then, Achilles' Song, which is also written by Madeleine Miller, then I'll just mention that novel.
0: Great, fantastic. What about you, Andy?
3: Uh, no beach novels, no airport novels on my shelf. Haven't been on a beach, haven't been on a plane. So Busman's Holiday, I'm afraid, very much um, about the kind of things we've been talking about. Peter Gihan. Although that's an Irish surname that I've no doubt mispronounced. Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics, about the import of uh, American dark money techniques into British politics, um, Brexit and a hard Brexit in particular.
0: Great. What about you, Jeremy?
2: Uh, I'm reading a book called uh, Rome, The Eternal City by uh, Ferdinand Addis. This is a history of Rome, basically from Romulus and Remus all the way to Federico Fellini, really sure why I'm reading this book. It's it's pretty good, but I think I'm reading it because it was free on Amazon Prime. Maybe it's a sign that you're not paying enough, Mark. Maybe because you can't get to Rome. Yeah, it could be that too.
0: Great. Well, fantastic. And I'd like to recommend the piece which I wrote on Trump's dirty tricks, not because of me. Yes, recommend
2: your own book on the bookshelf.
0: I was about to say, not because of me, but because of fact it's a distillation of the brilliant thoughts that you heard from Jeremy, from Asla, from Andrew, as well as some of our other colleagues who've been studying different politics in different places. So if you go to our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast, you will find links to all the publications that we mentioned. We would be very grateful to you if you could also tweet about this podcast, write about it on your Facebook page. But above all, give us a five-star rating and a review on whatever platform you're using to download this podcast on. But for now, from Asla Aydin-Tashbash, Andrew Wilson, Jeremy Shapiro, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halkenthal, and our editor is Marlene Riedel.